Hello, fellow saints, and welcome back to Come Follow Me with Brother T. We are going over Alma chapters 13 through 16 today. And here we have Alma, who's continuing to preach under the people of Ammonihah. And he talks about the priesthood, and we're getting some very good information about the priesthood. In fact, I think this chapter, chapter 13, should go hand in hand with section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when a young man is preparing to receive the Melchizedek priesthood. And he talks about foreordination, he talks about qualification, and he talks about ordination. So let's talk about ordination first. In Alma chapter 13, verse 3, he says, And this is the manner after which they were ordained, being called and prepared from the foundation of the world, according to the foreknowledge of God, on account of their exceeding faith and good works. In the first place, being left to choose good or evil, therefore, they, having chosen good and exercising exceedingly great faith, are called with a holy calling, yea, with that holy calling which was prepared with and according to a preparatory redemption for such. So first of all, we know that there was a premortal life, and this is testifying that there was a premortal life, and we also know that there was foreordination, that we were foreordained to do things great in the next life beyond the premortal life. And this goes right in line with Doctrine and Covenants section 138, verses 55 and 56, and Abraham 3, verses 22 through 23, which talk about the noble and great ones who were chosen in the beginning to be rulers of the church of God. Even before they were born, they were prepared to come forth and to lead and to work in the work of salvation. In fact, this is what Joseph Smith had to say about it. He said, every man who has a calling to minister to the inhabitants of the world was ordained to that very purpose in the grand council of heaven before this world was. I suppose that I was ordained to this very office in that grand council. Wilford Woodruff backed him up and said, Joseph Smith was appointed by the Lord before he was born as much as Jeremiah was. So I say with regard to Joseph Smith, he received his appointment from before the foundation of the world. And he came forth in due time of the Lord to establish this work on the earth. And so it is the case with tens of thousands of elders of Israel. The Lord Almighty has conferred upon you the holy priesthood, and made you the instrument in his hands to build up this kingdom. Do we contemplate these things as fully as we ought? It's a great question. Brethren, are we thinking about these things? You have been ordained, those of you who have. Do you contemplate on the fact that you were foreordained to do so, and that you have been given this calling and responsibility to do so? And hopefully we're not shirking that responsibility, and we're not giving up on those things which we are foreordained to do. Now, women, don't think that you're off the hook here, because President Kimball said, In the world before we came here, faithful women were given certain assignments, while faithful men were foreordained to certain priesthood tasks. While we do not now remember the particulars, this does not alter the glorious reality of what we once agreed to. You are accountable for those things which long ago were expected of you, as are those we sustain as prophets and apostles. So great information in terms of foreordination. Now let's look at ordination. So the time that we're here upon the earth and when we are ordained to these things. If we read verse 6, it says, And thus being called by this holy calling and ordained unto the high priesthood of the holy order of God to teach his commandments unto the children of men, that they also might enter into his rest. And I want you to remember the word rest because we're going to go over that later on in this podcast. But looking at verse 6, what is the main duty of the priesthood holders? Well, it's pretty clear. It's to teach his commandments unto the children of men. That's the higher calling. That's what we're called here to do first and foremost. And with that, now let's look at qualification. 
Verses 11 and 12 say, Therefore they were called after this holy order, and were sanctified, and their garments were washed white through the blood of the Lamb. Now they, after being sanctified by the Holy Ghost, having their garments made white, being pure and spotless before God, could not look upon sin, save it were with abhorrence. And there were many exceedingly great many who were made pure and entered into the rest of the Lord their God. So what do we have to do to remain qualified? Well, we must be sanctified. We must be pure. And this is what Brigham Young had to say the definition of sanctification was. He said, I will put my own definition to the term sanctification and say it consists in overcoming every sin and bringing all unto subjection to the law of Christ. God has placed in us a pure spirit. When this, the spirit, reigns predominant without let or hindrance, and triumphs over the flesh, and rules and governs and controls, this I call the blessing of sanctification. Will sin be perfectly destroyed? No, it will not, for it is not so designed in the economy of heaven. Do not suppose that we shall ever in the flesh be free from temptations to sin. Some suppose that they can in the flesh be sanctified body and spirit, and become so pure that they will never again feel the effects of the power of the adversary of truth. Were it possible for a person to attain to this degree of perfection in the flesh, he could not die, neither remain in a world where sin predominates. Sin has entered into the world in death by sin. I think we shall more or less feel the effects of sin so long as we live, and finally have to pass the ordeals of death. So we must be sanctified, and we must get to a point where, though we do have temptations, we are not overcome by those temptations, and we can overcome sin. And then Alma gives the perfect example of Melchizedek. In verse 14, he says, Yea, humble yourselves even as the people in the days of Melchizedek, who was also a high priest after the same order, which I have spoken, who also took upon him the high priesthood forever. And it was this Melchizedek to whom Abraham paid tithes. Yea, even our father Abraham paid tithes of one-tenth part of all he possessed. So here we're talking about Melchizedek. And what did Melchizedek do? Well, he set up ordinances. In verse 16, he says, Now these ordinances were given after this manner, that thereby the people might look forward on the Son of God, it being a type of his order, or it being his order, and this, that they might look forward to him for a remission of their sins, that they might enter into the rest of the Lord. So again, what was Melchizedek's main purpose? Well, he had the priesthood. He magnified his calling. So his job was to help others realize that they could repent by looking unto the Savior and becoming his servants, becoming new disciples. In verse 17, he says, Now this Melchizedek was king over the land of Salem, and his people had waxed strong in iniquity and abomination. Yea, they had all gone astray. They were full of all manner of wickedness. So he didn't come into just this great kingdom and was just leading a great people already. He had to really work. And Salem was not a very great place at the time. But Melchizedek, it says in verse 18, having exercised mighty faith and received the office of high priesthood, according to the holy order of God, did preach repentance unto his people. And behold, they did repent. And Melchizedek did establish peace in the land in his days. Therefore, he was called the Prince of Peace. For he was the king of Salem, and he did reign under his father. Now, because of that prince of peace, many people have confused Melchizedek with the Savior, with Jesus Christ. And he is not the same. He has very similar characteristics, obviously. He is a type and a shadow of the Savior. In fact, Hebrews 7.15 says, And it is yet far more evident, for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest, meaning Jesus Christ. And Doctrine and Covenants section 107, verses 2-4 through says, 
Why the first is called the Melchizedek priesthood is because Melchizedek was such a great high priest. Before his day, it was called the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. But out of respect or reverence to the name of the supreme being, to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name in the ancient days, called that priesthood after Melchizedek or the Melchizedek priesthood. So we get a great little insight into who Melchizedek was. And oh, by the way, just want to clarify that you see written in here, it says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. This is not talking about Melchizedek, but specifically about the priesthood, which Melchizedek hold and after which we named that priesthood. It's the priesthood that is without ending of, of days. It's the priesthood that, that doesn't have a mother or father and that has always existed. And that is the power that our God, our Father in heaven and his son Jesus Christ used to create the earth and to create us and to further existence and their godship. Now, if you remember back in verse 6, we talked about rest. And it says again in verse 16 that they were given ordinances and taught to look forward to the Son of God and the types and the shadows about him for a remission of their sins that they might enter into the rest of the Lord. And then again in verse 29, having faith on the Lord, having a hope that ye shall receive eternal life, having the love of God always in your hearts, that ye may be lifted up at the last day and enter into his rest. Joseph F. Smith said, What does it mean to enter into the rest of the Lord? Speaking for myself, it means that through the love of God, I have been won over to him, so that I can feel at rest in Christ, that I may no more be disturbed by every wind of doctrine, by the cunning and craftiness of men whereby they lie and wait to deceive, and that I am established in the knowledge and testimony of Jesus Christ, so that no power can turn me aside from the straight and narrow path that leads back into the presence of God to enjoy exaltation in his glorious kingdom, that from this time henceforth I shall enjoy that rest until I shall rest with him in the heavens. What a great definition of rest, because we know, and those of us who are active in the church and have callings, we know that there's no rest, right? There's always something to do. There's always someone to serve. There's always a blessing that we are seeking. But rest is knowing that through the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to worry once your testimony is secure about being deceived, that you can just follow the prophet's words and what's written in the scriptures, and be okay on your path back to Jesus Christ, and that through Jesus Christ, we can enjoy eternal life. Now, the opposite of that we see in verse 20, and it's also rest, but this is W-R-E-S-T, and verse 20 says, Now I need not rehearse the matter. What I have said may suffice. Behold, the scriptures are before you. If ye will rest them, it shall be to your own destructions. So what does it mean to rest the scriptures? Well, it means to twist or to distort, to turn from the truth or to twist from its natural meaning, to pervert. And that's from Noah's Webster's Dictionary from a long time ago. But this is what the manual says. It says, Thus, those who rest the scriptures change or distort the actual meaning to match their own personal opinion or interpretation. Those who manipulate the scriptures to stir up contention are inspired by Satan. The fate of those who rest the scriptures is their own destruction. And Zeezrom knew that. Well, he learned that, I should say. And this is why the people were so upset with Amulek and Alma is because they were resting the scriptures. And Alma and Amulek were spouting the truth 
They knew what was right, and the people did not like it to their own destruction. And we'll see how complete that destruction is in the next couple of chapters towards the end of the podcast. So here we are. You have rest and you have rest. You can rest, R-E-S-T, by studying the scriptures and the other words of the prophets and following the prophets and receiving that comfort, or you can rest the scriptures to your condemnation. The choice is yours. We have our agency. Now let's move on to chapter 14. And we know in chapter 14 that the people, many of the people, were truly converted and they started to repent and they started to search the scriptures and they were looking for rest, R-E-S-T. Now, the people who were resting the scriptures, W-R-E-S-T, wanted to get rid of all of these people who were believing Alma and Amulek. In fact, Zezrem was trying to convince them that he was wrong and that Alma and Amulek were right. And it says in verse 6, And it came to pass that Zezrem was astonished at the words which had been spoken. And he also knew concerning the blindness of the minds which he had caused among the people by his lying words. And his soul began to harrow up under a consciousness of his own guilt. Yea, he began to be encircled about by the pains of hell. And it came to pass that he began to cry unto the people, saying, Behold, I am guilty, and these men are spotless before God. And he began to plead before them that time forth. But they reviled him, saying, Art thou also possessed with the devil? And they spit upon him and cast him out from among them. And also all those who believed in the words which had been spoken by Alma and Amulek. And they cast them out and sent men to cast stones at them. Pretty rough times for these people who have changed and repented. Unless you think that good things don't happen to bad people or bad things don't happen to good people. This is one of those scriptures, next couple of chapters, where we really get to understand that the Lord allows things to happen for a reason. And sometimes that reason is to our own condemnation. And sometimes it's to teach us a lesson or for our own good. This is where something really bad happens. They take the wives and the children of those who believed and were thrown out, and they begin to burn them. And along with these wives and children, they also burn the records of Alma and Amulek's speeches and other holy writ, and they also burn the believers who were not cast out and were not did not get away. And they put Alma and Amulek right in the forefront so they can see the destruction of these good people, and so that they can show that Alma and Amulek have no power over this. And Amulek actually says, hey, why don't we just stretch forth our hands and save them by the power of God? And Alma says, in verse 11, he says, but I'm sorry the Spirit constraineth me, that I must not stretch forth my hand, for behold, the Lord receiveth them up unto himself in glory. And here's his explanation. And he doth suffer that they may do this thing, or that the people may do this thing unto them according to the hardness of their hearts, that the judgments which he shall exercise upon them in his wrath may be just, and the blood of the innocent shall stand as a witness against them, yea, and cry mightily against them at the last day. What an awful thing it would be to have to endure the suffering of women and children being cast into the fire knowing that you have the priesthood and knowing that you have the power but not the permission to save them. And the truth is is that we often have really bad things happen and we wonder why, why does God let this happen? But also we need to keep in mind the eternal perspective. President Kimball said if we looked at mortality as the whole of existence, then pain, sorrow, failure, and short life would be calamity. But if we look upon life as an eternal thing stretching far into the pre-mortal past and on into the eternal post-death future, then all happenings may be put in proper perspective. Is there not wisdom in giving us trials that we might rise above them, responsibilities that we might achieve, work to harden our muscles, sorrows to try our souls? Are we not exposed to temptations to test our strength, sickness that we might learn patience, 
death that we might be immortalized and glorified? If all the sick for whom we pray were healed, if all the righteous were protected and the wicked destroyed, the whole program of the Father would be annulled, and the basic principle of the gospel, free agency, would be ended. No man would have to live by faith. If joy and peace and rewards were instantaneously given the doer of good, there could be no evil. All would do good, but not because of the rightness of doing good. There would be no test of strength, no development of character, no growth of powers, no free agency, only satanic controls. Should all prayers be immediately answered according to our selfish desires and our limited understanding, then there would be little or no suffering, sorrow, disappointment, or even death. And if these were not, there would also be no joy, success, resurrection, nor eternal life and godhood. And it goes back here to the very end of the last podcast where President Packer talked about putting all things in context to the plan of salvation. Isn't this the plan of salvation that the Lord gives us moral agency to test us, to try us, and to help us develop? Well, Alma and Amulek sit and watch this, and then they bind Alma and Amulek, and they abuse them, and they mock them, and they ask if they're going to preach unto the people again. And Alma and Amulek, just like the Savior did when he was being mocked and spit upon, just stay silent. And they're cast into prison, and lawyers and teachers and judges and priests revile against them consistently for many days. And then in verse 23 it says, And it came to pass, after they had thus suffered for many days, and it was on the twelfth day, in the tenth month, in the tenth year of the reign of the judges over the people of Nephi, that the chief judge over the land of Ammonihah, and many of their teachers and their lawyers went in unto the prison where Alma and Amulek were bound with cords. And the chief judge stood before them and smote them again and said unto them, If ye have the power of God, deliver yourselves from these bands. And then we will believe that the Lord will destroy this people according to your words. Kind of bold statement right there. That's a, that's a question I wouldn't have wanted to ask. It says in verse 25, And it came to pass that they all went forth and smote them, saying the same words, even until the last. And when the last had spoken unto them, the power of God was upon Alma and Amulek, and they rose and stood upon their feet. Now, i got to think that these people, these judges and lawyers and, and priests, had to have gotten a little bit scared after Alma and Amulek stood up. And they should have, because Alma cries in verse 26, saying, How long shall we suffer these great afflictions, O Lord? O Lord, give us strength according to our faith which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And they broke the cords with which they were bound, and when the people saw this, they began to flee, for the fear of destruction had come upon them. And it says that the people heard the destruction and the noise, and they came, and standing in the rubble was Amulek and Alma, and everyone else had been killed as the walls of the prison had crumbled down upon them. And that wraps up one of the more interesting stories in the Book of Mormon. But it really has good comparisons with Joseph Smith's situation in Liberty Jail, where in verse 3 of Doctrine and Covenants section 121, he says, Yea, O Lord, how long shall they suffer these wrongs? And unlawful oppressions before thine heart shall be softened toward them, and thy bowels be moved with compassion towards them. And here the saints in Joseph's time who were being persecuted and oppressed, and Joseph's being oppressed and smitten upon, and he's in Liberty Jail where the conditions are absolutely horrible. But this was the Lord's response to Joseph at this time. And in verse 7, he says, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Thou shalt triumph over all thy foes. Thy friends do stand by thee, and they shall hail thee again with warm hearts and friendly hands. 
So, of course, you've got this contrasting episode between Joseph Smith being in Liberty Jail and the Lord saying, nope, peace, nothing's going to happen right now, you're not going to get out right now. And now you have Alma and Amulek, and they see this destruction of these women and children, and then they're thrown in jail, and they're beaten and challenged, and then when they've had enough, their bonds are loose, they stand up, and the jail comes crumbling down, and they're delivered. At this point, the people of Ammonihah send Alma and Amulek on their way. They go to the land of Sidon. And there in the land of Sidon, they find all of the brethren who had been converted and cast out and stoned, including Zeezrom. And Zeezrom is sick with worry because he knows that it was his testimony that started a lot of this contention with Alma and Amulek. He gives a great opportunity to see that sin can actually have a very physical component to it as well as a spiritual component. He asks to be healed, and it says in verse 6 of chapter 15, And it came to pass that Alma said unto him, Taking him by the hand, Believest thou in the power of Christ unto salvation? And he answered and said, Yea, I believe all the words that thou hast taught. And Alma said, If thou believest in the redemption of Christ, thou canst be healed. And he said, Yea, I believe according to thy words. And then Alma cried unto the Lord, saying, O Lord our God, have mercy on this man, and heal him according to his faith which is in Christ. And when Alma had said these words, Zeezrom leaped upon his feet and began to walk. And this was done to the great astonishment of all the people. And the knowledge of this went forth throughout all the land of Sidon. So, and now you have Zeezrom, who becomes a man of God and a very powerful missionary. I think it's worth mentioning that Amulek and Zeezrom have a lot in common. They're both from the land of Ammonihah. They were both very well-known, well-established, wealthy, and they lost everything. In fact, it says in chapter 15, verse 16, that Amulek had forsaken his gold and his silver, and that he was rejected by his friends, and even his father and kindred rejected him as well. So he lost everything, but he went on to become a very powerful missionary with Alma. Zeezrom, I would imagine, very similar things happened to him as well, and he became a very powerful missionary and worked with Alma as well. And now we move into chapter 16, where the prophecies of Alma are fulfilled. The Ammonihahites do not repent. They continue to do what they do. They ascribe the destruction of the prison and all of their chief priests and judges and lawyers to the devil. Uh, They think that Alma and Amulek use the power of the devil, and they do not repent because they don't believe in repentance because they're after the order of Nehor. But here come the Lamanites, and they go to the land of Ammonihah, and they completely wipe out the people of Ammonihah. In fact, in verse 9, about halfway down, it says, And the people of Ammonihah were destroyed, yea, every living soul of the Ammonihahites was destroyed, and also their great city, which they said God could not destroy because of its greatness. But behold, in one day it was left desolate, and the carcasses were mangled by dogs and wild beasts of the wilderness. And it talks about how for years people could not go up there and possess the land because of the stench, and they called it the desolation of Nehors. Surely the Lord was sending a very clear message to the Nephites that if they sin against the greater light and if they reject him in the promised land, there would be consequences. And the Ammonihahites didn't listen to the warnings and they were completely wiped out. And how did it happen? Well, the Lamanites attacked. Before the Nephites could raise a significant enough army to combat these attacking Lamanites, the city of Ammonihah and several of the neighboring villages had been destroyed or people had been taken captive. But I find it very interesting, too, because the chief captain of the Nephites was named Zoram. And it says in verse 5, about halfway down, Zoram and his two sons, knowing that Alma was high priest over the church, and having heard that he had the spirit of prophecy, therefore they went unto him 
and desired of him to know whither the Lord would that they should go into the wilderness in search of their brethren who had been taken captive by the Lamanites. So here you have this great commanding leader who knows that Alma is the prophet and is not afraid to supplicate unto the Lord for help in accomplishing the task that he's been assigned. Ultimately, this advice works, and they drive out the Lamanites and recover their brethren who were taken captive. And with that, Alma and Amulek go out preaching. And it says in verse 14, And as many as would hear their words unto them, they did impart the word of God without any respect of persons continually. And I want to note why and how they were successful. So in verse 14, it says that they taught to anyone. It says without any respect of persons and continually. And it goes through further in there, and it says there was no inequality among them, that they had the Spirit, that their hearts were prepared to receive, and that they received it with joy. And what did they teach? They taught against all lyings, deceivings, envyings, strifes, malice, reviling, stealings, robbings, plundering, murdering, committing adultery, and all manner of lasciviousness, crying that these things ought not to be so, holding forth things which must shortly come, Yea, holding forth the coming of the Son of God, his sufferings and his death, and also the resurrection of the dead. So they taught Christ and they taught peace, and they were successful because they did not have any respect of persons, and they put everyone on equal footing and on equal ground. And isn't that what the Savior does? He treats us all alike. We are all his children, regardless. And it is my prayer that we will take these lessons, that we will seek ways to build our faith to build the faith of others, to help others come unto Christ and to preach repentance, to use the priesthood to do so. And that is my prayer, knowing that Christ is our Savior, our Lord and Redeemer. And I say this in his name, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please feel free to contact me at drjaredthomas at gmail.com or send me a text at 916-412-2136. Thanks and have a blessed day.